please open your Bibles to Psalm 119. 119, and we will read the paragraph beginning in verse 9 and read through verse 16. And so again, Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all of my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Amen. Pray with me this morning. Our Father in heaven, we count it a joy and a privilege to be able to address you as our Father. We thank you that you have moved toward us in grace that you have provided a way of redemption for sinners through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that in him we are accepted in the Beloved, that we are reconciled to you, the Holy God, having our sins removed from us as far as the east is from the west. We thank you that you are a God of abundant redemption. You are a God of amazing grace. You are a God who delights in mercy. And we thank you that you are a God who finds joy in the blessing of your people. Father, we thank you that you love us and care for us the way that you do. Your love is beyond our comprehension. Your love is something that is staggering to us, especially in view of our sins. And Father, we thank you that in love for us, you have given to us the treasure of your word. And we thank you for the power of your word. And we thank you for the testimony of the psalmist whose devotion to your word is evident and an example to us. Father, I pray that our prayer would be that of the psalmist. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Father, may we treasure your word in our hearts in such a way 
that the last thing that we would ever desire to do is to sin against you. Father, I pray that if there are sins that we are entertaining, that you would bring conviction to our hearts and that you would give us the grace to forsake our sins and to truly delight in your word and to treasure your word in our hearts. Father, we rejoice in the way of your testimonies more than we rejoice in money, more than we rejoice in earthly riches. We meditate upon your word. We delight in your word. And by your grace, we shall not forget your word. And Father, as the psalmist so many times prays in this psalm, we also pray that you would teach us, that you would teach us your statutes. Father, I pray that this morning that you would remind us of the immense value of your word. I pray that you would remind us of the power of your word. I pray that you would remind us that your word is a means of grace to our souls like nothing else is. Father, I pray that you would enable your dear people to recognize the tremendous help and source of power and strength that your word is to us. Father, we pray that you would feed us. We pray that you would nourish us. We pray that you would be our help today. And we do render all of our praise to you. We honor you. We bless you. We ascribe to you the glory that is due to your name. We thank you for what you give, and we thank you even for what you take away. We know that you do all things well, and we know because you have promised us in your word that you do all things for our good and for your glory. Father, we thank you for Christ. It is on the basis of his righteousness and his blood alone that we come to you and make our appeal to you. And so we pray in his name and we pray gratefully. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things that makes God unique from all other beings in the universe is his power. God possesses within himself unlimited power, unbounded power, almighty power, infinite power. There is nothing that God cannot do in terms of his power. The scripture says in Psalm 62:11 that power belongs to God. And one of the ways that God demonstrates his almighty power is through his word, that is by speaking. 
In Psalm 33:11, we read, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. God has the unique ability to create all things out of nothing by merely speaking, by the mere breath of his mouth. So when God speaks, things happen. When God speaks, his power is unleashed. And central to the Christian faith is the reality that God has spoken to us in his written word, the Bible. The Bible then is no ordinary book. It is God's book. It is not the word of man. It is the word of God. If you will look at your bulletin insert at the first quote from John William Burgon, he says this, The Bible is none other than the voice of him that sitteth upon the throne. Every book of it, every chapter of it, every syllable of it, every letter of it is the direct utterance of the Most High. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. And when God speaks, he speaks with power. As the very word of God, the Bible has the power to change people's lives, to transform people's lives like nothing else can. It has that kind of ability. And so contrary to the opinion of the scoffers, the Bible is not outdated, it is not irrelevant. The Bible may be old, but it is more current than tomorrow's news. The message of the Bible is timeless. The Bible transcends time, it transcends culture, and it transcends history, the history of man. And what is more, there is a depth to the Scripture that cannot be exhausted. As Charles Spurgeon says, nobody ever outgrows Scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. And so instead of growing outdated, the Bible increases in its profundity over time to the one who reads it. What is more, you can read many books, but the Bible is the only book that can read you. As Martin Luther has written, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It, it pierces as far as the division of the joints and marrow, and it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. There is nothing else that can do that. There is nothing else that has that kind of power as the word of God. Other books may inform you, but only the Bible can transform you for time and eternity. Everything the Bible says is true. Everything the Bible says is profitable. Everything that you need to know for your spiritual life is revealed in this book, the Bible, the Word of God. In this way, beloved, the Bible, and here is a key word for today, the Bible is sufficient. It is sufficient. If you will look at your bulletin insert at the quote from John Murray, and John Murray really is condensing in one sentence the essence of what I am wanting to convey to you today in this morning's message. He writes this, 
There is no situation in which we are placed, no demand that arises for which Scripture as the deposit of the manifold wisdom of God is not adequate and sufficient. That is the heart, the essence of what I am endeavoring to say to you today. The Bible applies to your life in times and seasons of spiritual depression like nothing else can. In those times in your life when you are overcome with spiritual darkness, always remember that the power of the Word of God to transform your life is unmatched, it is unparalleled. Always remember that in the Bible you have the almighty power of God at your disposal to give you the sufficient help that you need. That brings us once again to our third and final major point in our study, Roman numeral three on your outline, the remedy for spiritual depression. Under this heading, we are developing a number of subpoints. We are now looking at letter C, the cultivation of Christian hope. And so far, we have looked at four ways. Number one, distrust yourself. Number two, talk to yourself. Number three, fight for faith. And then number four, learn contentment, which we looked at last time. And now we come to a fifth way, apply the means of grace. Apply the means of grace. This is so critical. Now, as we come to this particular point, it requires some introductory explanation. And so when you think about the grace of God, you should think about it in two ways in the life of a Christian. Number one is the saving grace of God, the saving grace of God. The word grace in the Bible simply means a gift, a gift. It is the Greek word charis, from which we get our English word charity. Charity is a gift. And so grace in the Bible is a gift from God that is unearned, it is unmerited, but it is even stronger than that. As I've said to you many times, the grace of God is the ill-deserved favor of God. That is to say that you deserve nothing but the everlasting damnation of God because of your sins, and yet God has freely and even joyfully given to you the gift, the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, whose sacrificial death on the cross and resurrection saves you from your sins and from the everlasting wrath of God that you deserve. And so when you think about the saving grace of God, it is ever and always in Christ. It is not found anywhere else. There is no other refuge from the wrath of God. There is no other deliverer from sin than Jesus Christ. And the New Testament uses a variety of terms to speak of God's saving grace to you, namely regeneration, justification, reconciliation, redemption, and adoption. This is the saving grace of God to you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there is also, number two, the sanctifying grace of God. Here, too, the idea is that of a gift. Sanctifying grace is the gift of God whereby you are enabled to live the Christian life. You are enabled to obey God. 
You are enabled to worship God acceptably. You are enabled to be like Christ. You are enabled to grow in personal holiness and godliness. So think of sanctifying grace, the sanctifying grace of God, in these terms as divine enablement. That is what it is. It is divine enablement that is a gift of God to you. And so you must keep in mind that you cannot and I cannot do one good thing in your Christian life apart from the sanctifying grace of God. In this way, we live in absolute dependence upon the grace of God for all things. Another way to say it is that God has provided you with the means of grace that when applied to your life will strengthen you, sanctify you, and enable you to grow spiritually as God requires. Now in this series, we are going to look at three means of grace that the Lord has provided for his people as a means of help and growth, the word of God, prayer, and the church. And with the time that we have this morning, we will only be able to look at the first one, that is the word of God. But please note that all three of these are essential, all three of these are necessary for living the Christian life. And so we will consider the first means of grace, the word of God. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. And so, beloved, we learn from that simple prayer that the word of God sanctifies you. It is God's instrument of sanctification. The word of God has a sanctifying influence upon your life. With that said, now listen very carefully to what I say now. Spiritual depression is a sanctification issue. It is a sanctification issue. It is a spiritual problem that is to be remedied with the word of God, the means of grace. If you will look at your bulletin insert, there is a lengthy quote from Wayne Mack, who is involved in the biblical counseling movement. And he is writing about the sufficiency of Scripture as it relates to biblical counseling. It's longer than the normal quotes that we give to you, but it is very, very helpful. So please follow along as I read this quote to you. He says, Many in our day and previously have affirmed the inerrancy and authority of scriptures in matters of faith and practice, but have not affirmed the sufficiency of scripture for understanding and resolving the spiritual, non-physical problems of man. They believe that we need the insights of psychology to understand and help people. In essence, they believe that when it comes to these matters, the Bible is fundamentally deficient. They believe that God did not design the Bible for this purpose. And so we must rely on extra-biblical psychological theories and insights. For many Christians, the Bible has a titular given a title and respected in name, rather than functional, actual, practical, real, respected in practice, authority in the area of counseling. 
They acknowledge it to be the word of God and therefore worthy of our respect. But when it comes to understanding and resolving many of the real issues of life, they give it a limited value. And that last sentence is key. And so there are many people who think that the Bible has limited value in terms of addressing the spiritual problems of man. Many think that it can only address and resolve the superficial problems that we face in life, but when it comes to the deeper and more complex problems of life, the Bible is deficient. It is not sufficient. And beloved, I submit to you that this is incorrect thinking. This is a tragedy in the church of Jesus Christ, this loss of confidence in the word of God to address and resolve problems in life that are beyond the superficial level. I say to you on the authority of the word of God that the Bible is sufficient to address the deepest spiritual problems that you face in your life, period. Period. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 as we develop this kind of understanding from a number of key passages, beginning in 2 Peter chapter 1. And we will begin reading in verse 2 and read down to verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 2, Peter writes, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, seeing that his divine power, we've been focusing on power, there is our idea there, his divine power has granted to us some things, no, Everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And so the key verse is verse 3. What does this verse affirm to us? Everything that you need pertaining to life and godliness is revealed in the knowledge of God. This is speaking about your spiritual needs as a Christian. The Bible, which reveals to us the knowledge of God, is sufficient to help you in whatever spiritual problem that you have in your life, even the deep and the complex problems that you face. If this is not so, then Peter is not accurate in what he is writing when he says that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so that does not lead me to conclude that the Bible is only able to address the superficial problems of life. It is able to address everything pertaining to life and godliness. Let's now turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. 
This is such a wonderful psalm on the revelation of God. It begins with God's revelation of himself in creation in verses 1 through 6, and then beginning in verse 7 and following, it focuses upon God's special revelation in his word in the scripture, the Bible. And there are two things that I want to draw to your attention in this psalm. Number one is the worth of God's word in verse 10. And I ask you, how valuable is the word of God? Verse 10, they, speaking about the commandments of God, the word of God, they are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And so, beloved, how valuable is the word of God? According to verse 10, the Bible is more valuable than gold. And not just cheap gold, but fine gold. And not just a little fine gold, but much fine gold. The Bible is more valuable than Fort Knox. It is a greater treasure than all of the gold in Fort Knox. He also says that it is sweeter than honey. Honey was the sweetest item of food known to man in that part of the world. And yet the Bible... David says, is even sweeter. The Bible satisfies your spiritual appetite like nothing else can. And so just imagine that someone comes along and says that they have found something that is more valuable than money and sweeter than honey. It is the Bible. It is the Bible. This is the value, the worth of God's word. Now, why is the word of God so valuable? Why is it so sweet? Why is it so desirable? Because of what David says in verses 7 through 9. And so now we move from the worth of God's word to the power of God's word. In verses 7 through 9, there are six parallel statements that when combined affirm the sufficiency of Scripture. Each of these statements contains a title for the Scripture, a characteristic of the Scripture, and a benefit of the Scripture. And I want to focus on really one question, and that is this. What is the Word of God able to do in your life, according to verses 7 through 9? Number one in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The word of God is perfect in the sense that it is complete. It is whole. It is adequate. It is sufficient. It is comprehensive. It covers all of life. It leaves nothing out. And as the sufficient word of God, it has the power to do what? To restore your soul. The word restore means to transform, to renew, to change, to revive. In other words, the word of God is so powerful and so comprehensive that it is able to transform you as a person. Number two, also in verse seven, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The word of God is sure in that it is reliable, it is trustworthy. The Bible can be trusted. And as the sure word of God, it has the power to make you wise. The Hebrew concept of wisdom is not philosophical, like in the Greek understanding of wisdom, but rather it is practical. 
It is highly practical. Wisdom as defined in the Old Testament is this. It is skilled. It is being skilled in the art of godly living. Being skilled in the art of godly living. And so the Bible is so powerful that it is able to take a fool, a simple person with no spiritual discernment, and make that person, that man, or that woman skilled in the art of godly living. The Word of God has the power to teach you how to live according to divine wisdom. That is powerful. Well, thirdly, in verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The word of God is right as opposed to crooked. There are so many people in life who are frustrated because they lack direction, but the word of God has the power to set you on the right path in your life. And because the word of God gives us the true and straight path in life, it brings joy to the heart. It rejoices the heart. Number four, also in verse eight, the commandment of the Lord is pure Enlightening the eyes. The word of God is pure in that it is clear. It is not confusing. Its overall message about God, about man, about life, about salvation, about eternity is crystal clear. No confusion. And because of Scripture's clarity, it has the power to enlighten the eyes. That is to give you understanding where there is otherwise ignorance. The word of God has the power to give you insight where there is confusion, to give you light where there is darkness. And then fifthly, in verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The word of God is clean in the sense that it is without impurity, it is without corruption, it is without error, it is without sin, it is without evil. It is pure, it is clean. And as the clean word of God, it has the ability, it has the power to endure how long? Forever. Forever. That is to say the word of God is fixed, it is unchanging. It is permanent. It has abiding relevance. It never needs to be revised. It never needs to be updated. It never needs to be expanded or edited. It is always applicable, and it is never out of date. Never. And then sixthly, lastly, in verse 9, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. The word of God is true. The Bible is the true word of God. It reveals the truth about origins. It reveals the truth about the purpose of life. It reveals the truth about morality, the truth about values, the truth about death, the truth about destiny, the truth about eternity, the truth about heaven and hell, the truth about love, forgiveness, hope, security, and every other fundamental spiritual issue in life. It is the truth. And as the true word of God, the Bible has the power to provide a comprehensive standard of righteousness. And so, beloved, I submit to you that the Bible, the word of God, is sufficient. It is not deficient. It is sufficient. 
It is perfect. It is sure. It is right. It is pure. It is clean. And it is true. And it has the power to restore the soul, to make wise the simple, to rejoice the heart, to enlighten the eyes, to endure forever, and to provide a comprehensive standard of righteousness. And so I ask you, what else do you know of that can do all of that? Nothing. The Bible stands alone. It is unique in its ability to do these things. There is nothing in this world that can do for you what the Bible can do for you. It has that kind of power. It is the sufficient word of God. It is sufficient to save sinners. It is sufficient to sanctify saints. It is sufficient for all of life and for all of godliness. Listen, it is able to address the matters of the heart and the soul like absolutely nothing else can. This book is alive. It is the word of God. It has hands. It grabs me, as Luther says. It has feet. It runs after me. It reads me. It divides my heart and unfolds my thoughts in my intentions, like nothing else can. It bears within it the unbounded power of God. Now let's turn to Psalm 119. And I like to think of Psalm 119 as really a longer version of Psalm 19, a much longer version. Psalm 119, and we will just look at some select verses, beginning with verse 24. Such a sweet verse. Your testimonies. Now, let me just say this. Let me remind you that Psalm 119, in every verse, every single verse is about the Word of God. Every verse, without exception. All 176 verses is a testimony and a prayer by the psalmist about the word of God. And so he says here in verse 24, your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. I love that. So who is God to his people? He is our wonderful counselor. And his word is our counseling textbook. His testimonies, they are my counselors. Now, when we think about the subject of biblical counseling, what is biblical counseling? It's really very simple. Biblical counseling is this. It is applied theology. That's all that it is. It is applying the truth of God's word to your situation and to your problem. That is biblical counseling. And the testimony of the scripture itself, about itself, is that it is our counselor. In verse 28, my soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. And so what does the word of God do in verse 28? It strengthens you in your time of grief. Verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. And then verse 52, 
I have remembered your ordinances from of old, O Lord, and comfort myself. And then verse 76, O oh, may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word to your servant. What does the word of God do? It comforts you in your suffering. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What does the word of God do? It gives you wisdom. It gives you direction. In verse 111, I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. And then verse 162, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. What does the word of God give to you? It gives to you joy. More joy than money. More joy than an inheritance. More joy than the spoils of war. And then in verse 165, those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble the word of God, beloved, gives you peace. It gives you peace. And so again, I say to you, the Bible is sufficient because of what it can do for you in your life. It has the power to counsel you, to strengthen you, to comfort you, and to give you wisdom, joy, and peace. Just this morning, I was reading through this psalm, Psalm 119, and I came to verse 92. Let's look at verse 92. And I was so encouraged by this one verse as we think about the power of the word of God in the life of the Christian and what it's able to do the psalmist says in verse 92 if your law had not been my delight then I would have perished in my affliction you know what happens to people who suffer affliction and they do not delight in the word of God they're destroyed in their affliction. They're crushed. If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. And what he is saying is that I did not perish in my affliction because of the power of the word of God to help me and to minister to me and to enable me to endure and survive that affliction. That is power. There is nothing else in this world that can do for you what the Bible can do for you. If you will once again look at your bulletin insert, we have a quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a marvelous statement. This is from chapter 1, which addresses of the Holy Scripture. And it's Roman numeral 6 in chapter 1. And I'm going to read the whole thing to you, but there is really one sentence that is the key thought that I want to focus on, but I'll read the whole thing. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men, 
Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. Now I know that that is a lot, that is a a difficult paragraph in terms of its depth, it requires real concentration, but again, please note the very first sentence. Let me read it again. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his, that is God's own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. In other words, the Scripture is sufficient. It is sufficient. It is a sufficient means of grace in your life. It addresses all things pertaining to life and godliness. It is able to help you and give you power like nothing else in the world can. And to connect this back to our theme, the theme of this series, the hope of God, look at Psalm 119 and verse 49. We are reminded in this one verse, verse 49, that the word of God has the power to give to us hope. Remember the word to your servant in which you have made me hope. You have made me hope. And with that thought, let's turn to one last verse in the book of Romans, Romans 15 and verse 4. Romans 15 and verse 4. Romans has much to say about the hope we have in Christ, the hope we have through the gospel. We have looked at a number of passages in this series already from Romans, but in Romans 15, 4 we read, this is a statement from Paul about the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, for whatever was written in earlier times was written, why? For our instruction. Listen, the Old Testament is not to be ignored. It was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And so what produces hope in the life of the people of God? It is the Scriptures. It is the Scriptures. From the Scriptures we are instructed From the scriptures we are taught to persevere, we are encouraged that we might have hope. But I ask you, how do the scriptures give us this hope? How do they do this? At least three ways. Number one, by revealing the character of God. When you read the scriptures, you are reading the revelation of God, the disclosure of God. It is his self-revelation. 
And from the scriptures we learn and are reminded that God is good, that God is your father, that God is kind, that God is forgiving, that God is gracious, that God is merciful, that God is faithful, that God is sovereign. And as you are reminded about the attributes and the nature of God, it gives to you hope. The scriptures also give you hope in this way by revealing the promises of God. This is where the promises of God are contained. And as the scripture says, you are forgiven of your sins through Jesus Christ. You are accepted by the holy God through Jesus Christ. Through the gospel, you have the hope of future glory. Through the gospel, you have the hope that God is working all things together for your good in this life, Romans 8.28. As you read of those promises in the word of God, it cultivates hope in your heart. And then thirdly, the scriptures give us hope by providing examples of men and women who have lived long before us, who hoped in God, and who were not disappointed, like Joseph, like Daniel, like David, and on and on it goes. And so, beloved, the word of God is a means of grace to sanctify you, to strengthen you, to empower you, And it is a means of grace to engender within your heart the hope of God that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, there's one more thing that is in your bulletin that I have included for you that is so wonderful. It is from the MacArthur Study Bible. It is in the introductory material at the front. And it's really a wonderful summary of the Word of God. And here is what it says. This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrine is holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be saved, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here heaven is open, and the gates of hell are disclosed. Christ is the grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, health to the soul, and a river of pleasure. It is given to you here in this life, will be opened at the judgment, and is established forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and condemn all who trifle with its contents. Beloved, this is the word of God. And it is the source of your power and of your hope. Next week, Lord willing, we will look at the other two, the next two means of grace, prayer 
and the church, but with the time that we have left this morning, it is our unspeakable privilege to remember and to celebrate the great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ in our behalf. Jesus ordained for the church to remember on a regular basis the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body on the cross in our place as the only way of salvation and redemption. And so this morning it is our privilege to be reminded to celebrate once again the glory of Christ. And let me just remind everybody that this is an ordinance that is available to all believers. And so if you are a Christian and you are here this morning, you are free to partake in the Lord's Supper. But it is not available to unbelievers. And so if you are not a Christian, we thank the Lord that you are here. But we would ask that when the trays come your way, that you would simply pass them on to the next person. Furthermore, this is a time not just of celebration, it is a time of self-examination. We cannot rightly celebrate Christ and celebrate sin in our hearts at the same time. And so this is a time to confess sin, to ask God to search our hearts and our minds, and to be willing to forsake and renounce any sins that we may be entertaining. And so let's take a few moments and prepare ourselves to receive rightly the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> 